0: I was not able to listen to Pastor Joey's message last week, but I was able to listen to it later. And uh, what he set the case for is we're talking, we're in this new series called Grace Upon Grace. And what we're answering or what we're talking about is the importance of grace in the Christian life and what it actually means for us as Christians and how it wants to influence us and and transform us. Because I think a lot of times when we think about grace, it can be something that's uh, vast and kind of a big subject. And so what we want to do in this series is talk about the many facets of grace and how it actually wants to impact and influence our lives as believers. Because, in, and this comes from 1 Peter 4.10. The apostle uh, Peter makes a statement about the nature of God's grace. He calls grace the, uh, the manifold or multifaceted grace of God. And the word multifaceted is the Greek word po- pokylos, not to be confused with Pokemon. It's the first definition. That, and it's the first definition of the word in the Strong's Dictionary is uh, varied color. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, it's the... Um, It's the word that's used for um, Joseph's coat of many colors. So in other words, God's grace or the grace that he wants to supply us with is very colored. It's, it's, It's something that's so vast and big, but there's dimensions to it. And so I thought maybe a helpful way to think about it might be to think of light. That white light that we see it is such a vast thing, right? But actually inside of light are all these different colors that make up a thing called white light. And that's the same with God's grace. So this grace that God has for us has many facets or many colors to it. And what we want to look today is how this grace helped us. But the the importance of knowing the different facets of this grace is not just a theological thing. It's not just we're trying to figure out so we can be smarter Christians. But that this grace that God supplies us with is actually here to transform us. And it's actually here to do something for us. In Hebrews 4.16 it says that God's grace, that we're to approach God's uh, throne of grace with confidence... In our time of need. That God's grace is actually called his power in 2 Corinthians 12 9. And so a helpful way to think of of it, another example might be, you know, in our houses we don't have um, toaster power. Or maybe you do, I don't. I just have outlets with power. Toaster power or vacuum power or TV power. But what we have is power. And depending on the need that we have, we then plug into that power to, and it gives us power for our present need. So God's grace is the same way. And so that sets us up for talking about today what we're talking about with God's grace, which is how do we grow by grace? And how is God's grace here available to help me to grow specifically in the area of a Christian to become more like the character of Christ and to show more the, um, the attitudes and the um, uh, thoughts of Christ? So how many of you are interested in that? You want to grow and become more like Jesus, right? I think we all do. But because we, we all have a nature to grow. We all have a desire to become something more. In fact, in the beginning, when God made Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and, and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. So in other words, grow, grow, multiply, go forth, do things. And we know how to do things. And so we do them. And we know how to grow businesses, how to grow families, how to grow ministries. But when it comes to... So we look at our outward world and we feel like we're having success maybe a little bit or we look back on our past success and feel, like, feel good. But then we look on the inside... And we look at our spiritual growth and maybe feel like things aren't progressing as quickly as, as we might hope. And so we despair a little bit. And we, we know how to uh, fix an engine, but we don't know how to fix our, our hearts. We know how to talk to a friend, but we don't know how to pray. And it causes us to feel at least a little bit confused, if not despairing, about how to grow in Christ. Because we all have a desire to if we're pure-hearted believers, which I believe everyone in here is is that we're pure hearted believers that we want to grow to become more like Jesus but some of us just don't know how and that's where grace comes to help us and we and we see things like be transformed and put off the old person and and be transformed by the renewing of your mind but we feel like we're not equipped for the job and this can lead us to feel like phonies and frauds in the church that we each week you know we come and and we want to do well and but we just feel like we're not living up to the expectation and so we have to present something on the outside that we don't really feel like is happening on the inside. Or at least that's why I feel. And so maybe you haven't felt that way, but that's the way that I felt growing up. And so my struggle or my wrestling about how God wanted me to grow began when I was saved at 15 years old. So if you guys don't know, um, I got saved at 15, wasn't looking for God, didn't want God, but God just mercifully saved me at 15. And, uh, and from that point, I had a conviction of sin, but I just didn't really know what to do with it. So I had a desire to do right, but I just and I but I was just kind of caught, you know, in the in the thick of sin. Just my tires were spinning; wasn't able to grow. And so what this did is it just caused me to live in more and more shame. I would fail, more shame. Add rules, uh, fail, more shame. Rules, and this continued and continued. And this original, but God was faithful. And in the beginning, I. You know, I didn't really know what to do, but my, I remember my mom gave me a Bible. It sat there for a while, and then I eventually picked it up, and I started reading it, and God started doing things in my heart and in my mind, and started to pray a little bit more, not really knowing, but God was doing things. And I had first love in my heart, so God did work. But, and then, but I trusted that that love that I had in my heart was going to sustain me through it all. So if you think of it like a, like a fire in the engine of a train, that I was just, that, that was, I mean, my passion was pulling me down the tracks. It was, it was moving forward. But I was trusting that that fire was never going to go out. That I wasn't going to have to do anything to, to supply it. But I found quickly that my heart did grow cold. And my passion did wane. And so I started to freak out. And I realized that if I didn't do anything about my, my internal world, that maybe I was going to come to a complete halt. And so what I did is I swung back the other way. Because before what I had been focusing on is just trusting that God was going to do it all for me. But then I swung back the other way. So it became really legalistic. So I'm going to read my Bible two hours a day. Right? I'm going I'm to fast once a week. I'm going to read one book a week. I'm going to do all these things. But the, that, the spiritual equivalent of that is like never running, you know, once in your life and then trying to run a marathon the next day. You're setting you up for yourself up for failure. And obviously I failed, and I failed a lot. And I think it's something that, uh, that we see in the Bible too. God gives His commands to His people, gives the Ten Commandments, and then they fail. And then because they fail, God then gives more commandments. And then they fail, and then they give more. Because what we often do in our own lives, if you think of it on a personal level is that we fail, and then to compensate for the failure, we then add more things. And then you fail, and you add more things, and you fail, and you add more things. Until you're caught in all this. And this is what God's people did, Israel did, until they're left with 613 laws and commandments that they had to abide by and follow. But the law made nothing perfect. In Hebrews 719, it says exactly that. For the law, this 613 laws that... Israel had to be made nothing perfect in other words these things that Israel's doing that sometimes we do these outward works of godliness make nothing perfect but the law instead of making things perfect rather is meant to expose imperfections and that's what the purpose of the law Paul says i would not have known sin unless the law had said you shall not covet so in other words this law isn't meant to be a means of becoming more godly but to rather show us how ungodly we are and sometimes what we do as Christians is when we fail, we add a lot more things to our life to become more godly. But we fail. And it really just exposes how fallen we really are. And so how do we grow then? What's, what's God's means of growth? If it's not by just a desire to be godly, if it's not by works of godliness, then how do we grow? Well, Jesus came to present a new way to grow. A growing by grace. Which is what this series is about. And, and Joey shared this scripture last week. It's in John 1, 16 and 17. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus came to present a new way to grow. Instead of growth being something that we crowbar ourselves into with striving and angst, it's now presented in the way of grace. The old covenant and the current world system function under a system of law. The new covenant in God's kingdom function under a system of grace. Grace presents a new way to think about life, a new way to think about money and relationships. And today, grace presents a new way to think about Christian growth and becoming more like Christ. So there's four primary ways. But first, before I talk about the proper way that God designs us to grow in Christ, I want to talk about the ways that maybe might be inaccurate to kind of clean this out a little bit. So there's four primary ways that Christians tend to think about growth. It's God, then me, God, not me, God plus me, and God in me. And so God, then me, what does that mean? So this is the belief that I fell into, and I think that a lot of us can sometimes fall into when we're thinking about Christian growth, is that God is the one that saved me, God is the one that brought me to himself, but now it's up to me to show him how thankful I am by performing works of godliness, by doing all these things for him. However... The error with this is that it doesn't account for the sin in the life of a believer. It doesn't account. It predicts us to be, is is that we expect ourselves to be perfect. Is that God saved us, but now I have to do it on my own, which we can't. And so it leaves us to this view of God that he just saved us just to abandon us. But of course that's not the case. It doesn't account for the sin in the life of a believer. And furthermore, it gives us a bitter view of God who saved us only to abandon us. To find out the problem of sin on our own. But we know that Jesus is better than that. Because Jesus is our intercessor. intercessor. And when we think about Jesus, we're, um, we're acquainted with his ministry, we're acquainted with his disciples, maybe his teachings. But, but we think that his work is done. We think that the work of Christ is finished. And he did say it was finished. But after he died and resurrected, he paid the price for sin. But then he appeared to his disciples. And it says that as he ascended, so Christ resurrected, he ascended, which is what we know. But not just that, he is now intercessor. That for now and ever, forever, he is intercessor for you and me. What that means is that he is the go-between, between us and the Father. That the thing that we cannot not do, he did on our behalf. That by faith in him, that he is constantly petitioning and praying and pleading for the Father on our behalf. And it's because we understand this. That this can't be true. It's not God, then me. This is not the way to think about it. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, farther than the eye can see or the mind can comprehend. That he is a complete savior. He is a comprehensive savior because we are complete sinners. And because we are complete sinners, we need a complete savior, which is what Jesus is. Because we continue to deal with sin. But how nice it would be if we didn't. How nice it would be if we didn't deal with sin. But we do. And then more than we would like to admit sometimes. And it's in those moments that we don't need a past savior, but we need a present one. Which is what Jesus is. As the psalmist says in Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. But a lot of us don't feel like God is a present help in times of trouble. Maybe he was the God of the past, but he's not the God of the present. And I think a story that illustrates this the best is the story of the prodigal son. But not the prodigal son maybe that you're thinking about. There's two sons. And we know the story of the the younger son. The one that spoiled his father's inheritance with prostitutes and gambling. That ran away from home. And the father welcomed back. And there's a celebration and everything's good. But then there's the elder brother. The one that's been home. The one that's been faithful. The one that's been doing the work on the farm. That's been doing everything right. And so when when he hears the music and the dancing and the celebration, he he starts to think, well, what's going on? And he goes outside and sees the celebration for his brother that ran away. And then he says, Father, haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done everything right? And yet when this son comes back, you throw a party for him. But here I am, doing, doing everything you wanted me to. Maybe that's how some of us feel. Feeling like, We've been faithful to the Lord. We've done everything he's wanted us to do. Only feel like he's not present with us. But he is. And what he said to the son is what he says to you and me. In Luke 15, 31, he says, my son or my daughter, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. That he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. He is not just the God of our past, but he is the God of our present that is able to save us in the present from the things that scare us. The second incorrect way that we think about growth is God, not me. And the second error comes from an overemphasis on human, if the, sorry, if the first one comes from an overemphasis on human effort, this focuses too much on divine sovereignty. And I don't believe that the vast majority of believers struggle with this view, because I believe as we're pure-hearted, we're probably going to probably swing the other way. But this, is, this might be the result of bad teaching that says that everything in the Christian life, is determined by God. And this would be an unhealthy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And this is the result, uh, yeah, an unhealthy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. But the scriptures say continuously that we have to give an account in the day of judgment for the things that we have done in the body. Meaning that what we determine to do with our lives matters tremendously to God. In Matthew 25, it talks about that there will be a great white throne judgment, and that there will be a separation between the sheep and the goats. Which is what most of us think about when it comes to judgment. That there's Christians and non-Christians and will be separated. Those who belong to Christ and those who don't. But what we don't often account for is that there's a second judgment for Christians. Based on what we have done as Christians in Christ's name. This is what Jesus says in in Matthew 10.42. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose the reward. Hebrews Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help him. We are told continuously in the scripture to be all the more diligent, to take every thought captive, to run to win the prize and strive to enter the narrow door. This is why belief that God will simply make me grow as much as he wants me to isn't the correct way to think about growth either. So it's not the second one. God plus me, and this is a little bit closer, but this would be to say that it's 50% God and 50% me. That there's a circle and God fills half of it and I fill the other half. But again, this, this isn't the, west way, the correct way the New Testament presents growth. The correct way is the last one. is God in me. God, um, It's 100% God, so it's both 100% God and it's 100% me. Which is not good math, but it's good theology. It's, not, it's 100% God and it's 100% us. Even, so, even as... Christ is both 100% God and 100% man. That it is both a work of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Jonathan Edwards, the preacher and leader of the uh, Great Awakening in the 18th century, called our growth in Christ both wholly passive, not holy, uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly passive and wholly active. That it is both completely us and completely God. God in me. And there's sep- several scriptures in the uh, New Testament that illustrate this. And you can pull all those down. So starting in 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see both the human responsibility and the divine sovereignty. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all. So that's the human responsibility. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Divine sovereignty. Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's the human responsibility, for it is God, there's the divine sovereignty, who works in you, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And Colossians, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So we can see this, that it is both God in me, and it's both a matter of uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Um... Pastor and author Dane Ortland says this about Christian growth. Your Christian growth is a matter of divine grace. You cannot crowbar yourself into growth. You must be lifted into growth. But the divine grace that brings about change is a divine grace that fuels and fills our own efforts. For we are in his son. All right. So practically, what can this look like? What can this look like to live both with human responsibility and divine sovereignty? Understanding that it's God that makes us grow but we participate, is that maybe you get up in the morning and you have a lot of things ahead of you, right? You have the checklist, you have all these things and you look at your day and it's overwhelming and then you pray and you say, God, I'm, I'm trusting that I need your grace. I need your grace today all along the way that I have this going on and I have this going on. And so as you go throughout your day by faith, you're looking for God's grace. You're praying for his grace. You're asking for wisdom in conversations. You're trusting by faith that his grace is with you as you go throughout your day. And then by the end of your day, you're able to look back on the fruit of it and you say, God, thank you that your grace was with me, that you were helping me and supplying me and and you were the one sustaining me, that it is both that we work by faith, trusting in his grace, that it is both a work of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And it says that we are in Christ, in Christ. And Joey was talking about this um, as he opened up, that we have died. It says in Colossians 3, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, our life has been swallowed up by God, engulfed in God. Constantly in the letters of the New Testament, we see the language of being in Christ. But just as with Christ, but not just with Him, but in Him. In fact, this is the greatest truth about our identity. In Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the greatest thing about us is not our race, our economic status, our gender. But the greatest thing about us is our identity in Christ. Is that we are in Christ. And so if you think about your life as like an onion, right? You have the outside shell, which would be like your personal interests. You know, the movies you like to watch or something. And then maybe beneath that is like your personality. What you like, uh, Um, What you think about during the day. And then in there, you know, there's more. And then maybe that's the things you love and you're passionate about. And you keep going and you keep going. And if you keep going, at the very center of who you are is Christ. That you have been united with him. That he is in you. And as we see, that we are in him as well. And so what does this actually mean for us today? Practically, how does growth in Christ happen? That That we are safe in him. We are safe in him. And now that we know that we are united and safe in our union with Christ, this leads us to our first essential ingredient for Christian growth, growth, which is love. So rooted in love. One author says this about the relationship between love and Christian growth. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace of us. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace of us. The Puritan... Uh, John Owen said this about the eminence of God's love. He says so much as we see the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once be taken up with the eminence of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered and endeared unto him. This if anything will work upon us to make our abode with him. What this is saying is that as much as we delight in God, directly correlates to as much as we will grow in God. And that there's many things about God that are great, his holiness, his wonder, his majesty. But it's his love that draws us to him and causes us to be rooted in him. Love is the most essential and nutrient for Christian growth. And we see that in Ephesians 3. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, so there it is, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, and height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love, that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This scripture informs us that before anything else, to be rooted and firmly established in love, and that like any tree that's going to grow successfully, it depends on the root system. The healthier the roots, the better the fruits. What Christians often mistake, what the Christians the mistake that we make is to, to see root problems, is to see root problems in our life and think that it's strictly a fruit problem. But it's not the fruits, it's the roots. And if we have healthier roots, then we'll by nature have healthier fruits. And the fruits that we're talking about are the fruits of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, the character of Christ that we want to exemplify and show. And so by nature, we know that it's a root problem. And so if you're not producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the most likely answer is that you you aren't drawing strength and nutrients from the love of God in Christ. We can only ascend uh, as high in God as we are deeply rooted in the love of God. We can only ascend as high in God as we are deeply rooted. And when our roots go deep into the love of God, they're going deep into God himself. Because God is love. In 1 John 4 it says that God is love. That love is not something that God has, it is something that he is. That if you were to touch God, you would be touching love. Thomas Goodwin said that Christ is love covered over with flesh. When Jesus loves, Jesus is being Jesus. And because this is who God is, this is who we're we're made to be. And this explains why the deepest longing of our hearts is to be completely loved and accepted for who we are because we're made in his image. And we know that something's wrong. We understand something's wrong. That's why we all desire that. And that's why it's the most essential nutrient for Christian growth is because it's where we came from. And it doesn't feel right unless we get back there. And it says in the scripture that we are not just to think about it, but that we are to know it experientially. Because there's some things that that you can only know. There's only some things you can know. Like how do you explain a sunset to a blind person? Or how do you explain, those of you parents, the first time you had your child, that feeling that you felt. How do you explain that? You can't. There's only some things that you can experience. God is not only pleased to love us, but receives pleasure when we understand how much he loves us. And it's this experiential knowledge of God comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Titus says, Titus 3, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us, which he poured out past tense, on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then Romans 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Has been poured into our hearts. So if we are a Christian, we then have the Holy Spirit who is called the love of God. We have the love of God available to us. And I want to share a story. So I kind of shared my um, experience at the beginning of uh, being a young believer and then struggling with shame and all this stuff. Um, and I hesitate to share this story because... Um, it's personal to me, but I believe it's important to what we're talking about. So in that season, I was, again, struggling with sin, struggling to how to grow as a Christian, I guess. And I remember, I don't really know how or why, but every night I would pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't really know what I was praying for, but I just wanted, I wanted the God in my head to get in my heart. I wanted to experience this God that I heard about. And I knew that He was real. And I knew that there had to be more, that He was alive today. And if He's alive today, I want to know Him. I want to know Him in my heart. And so every night I would pray that. And I remember I was in youth group here, and um, we went to um, a youth conference. And I went there uh, the first night, just riddled in shame. And I talked to this one guy, he's a, he's a leader at the conference. And I just remember looking into his eyes and I was like, there's something about him. Like, I, don't, I can't really tell what it is but I just see something in his eyes. And so he, we, he and I kind of formed a bond. Maybe I think we talked a little bit. He was from Nebraska. So we talked about Nebraska football and Ohio State football. And, and then it t- came time for worship. So I came up front and I'm worshiping. Still dealing with things. And then I feel him come behind me and he prays for me and he gives me a prophetic word. So the Holy Spirit had given him a word for me. And it was exactly what I needed to hear. And I, and I broke down and I cried and I thought that was it. I thought that was good enough. I, you know, I I knew God was real, but now I know God's real. But then the next night, we're, we're having a, a worship service or a prayer service, and and uh, and I have several people pray for me, and I kind of told them, you know, what was happening, and and they did, and then um, there was this one girl that came up to me, and she said, "The Holy Spirit's coming down on you right now." And as soon as she said that, <clears throat> and I'm, I mean, I don't like, yeah, I could be lying to you. But I'm not. I know what happened. So I, I said, okay. So I looked. And by the time I was able to look at her, it, God's presence hit me. And I fell to the ground unwillingly. And I just, I can't explain it other than, like, if life were a substance, which I know that Christ is, it filled my heart. And the God of my head now became the God of my heart. And that was through the Holy Spirit. And see, you don't need... An encounter like that, to know that the Holy Spirit is with you, or to know His love. Because when we're talking about the experiential knowledge of the Holy Spirit, it's much more. And since I've had that encounter, I still struggle with understanding that God loves me. So that's not the answer. The answer is to know that the Holy Spirit is in you. And because He's in us, it's not just emotions, it goes past emotions to something that the old-timers called affections. It's these things that the, the will, the volition of, of our internal motives, the things that we think about and And what we're processing, these affections in our heart. And so Paul is praying here. He says that this this love that you know about, he's praying that it goes from your head to your heart. And it says that when this happens, that we'll experience fullness. In other words, the person that you want to become, the person that God created you to be and predestined you for, is the person that's formed in love. Up my notes. So this person that God predestined you to be, you will not become that person unless you experience the fullness of Christ's love because that's who he created you to be and, who, uh, and who, where we start, fullness. You cannot become the person that you're created to be unless you're first rooted and grounded in love of Christ. Ephesians four fifteen through 16. The scripture says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So growth does not come from the outside in, but from the inside out. Christian growth has its roots firmly established in the love of Christ. So that's part one, rooted in love. And then part two is remaining in love remaining in love and this is easier said than done because everything in our world everything that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about the love of God is that it's constantly trying to pull us away from the love of God in Christ is that we make a mistake and are instantly our our instinct like Adam and Eve in the beginning is to withdraw is to pull back from God's love but that's not the place that you need to be if you want to grow the place that you actually need to stay is in Christ's love and to stay rooted there Jesus in John 15 he says remain in me and I in you Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. And then a few verses later in verse 9: As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. In other words, freeze. Stay, don't move. Stay where you are. And it's, I was gonna call this the work of abiding, because abiding is work. Sometimes it takes everything in us not to move away from where we already are in Christ. But it just makes sense if we abide in him, that we can do nothing apart from him. So if we're going to grow, we have to stay. And what he's saying here is that you have to stay not only rooted but remaining in my love. But what often happens is that we, you know, we experience God's love and then we think we need to add to it. Or that we need to do something to, uh, to make him feel a little bit better about the decision that he made for us. But what Gal- Gal- uh, Galatians says, 3.3, how foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? So there's nothing that we can do to earn it. That's why Jesus tells us to remain. This is the the daily returning, the daily remaining, even when it gets hard. That even when we sin, we remain. It's the work of remaining. And that that the ship of his love has sailed. That it's, it's staying. That his love is, he's already made his decision. And there's nothing we can do about it. Just as loved as we are now as, as, as much love as we will ever be. So just as a tree grows by its roots remaining in the soil, so we grow as we remain in Christ. So now we talked about kind of the theological part of it, right? Remaining uh, rooted and returning to him. But practically, how do we do this? How do we become, stay uh, rooted in Christ's love and growing in him? It begins like any other thing in life by simple... Habits and exercises, which sometimes we don't like to hear. Because that sounds like law. It sounds like, we're, well, you just told me this was wrong. But there's a difference. And the, the means of Christian discipleship, how Jesus wants to transform us is more than just an outward, like, sticker of I am now a Christian. So what that means is that when I'm in a situation, being a Christian is more than just biting my tongue and giving the answer I should. Christian discipleship is actually from my heart being transformed, by my mind being transformed, and naturally from the nature of Christ within me, then giving an answer that Christ would give. So it's not just, that's good, that's a start, to just give the answer that Christ would want us to give. But actual true growth is not just giving that answer out of will, but actually out of desire. So the classic, what would Jesus do is great, but it's not a means of discipleship that God has set in place. Each one of us growing up saw a performance of some type. uh, Whether it was a singer or an athlete and decided that we wanted to be like them. We may have even dressed up like them uh, or uh, made our shooting stance or our our batting stance or our shooting form like them. But we understood that we weren't going to play like them or we weren't going to sing like them. Because that would take years of practice. But oftentimes Christians, when we think about the life of discipleship and putting on the appearance of Christ-like character... We often think of that. We think that it's just a sticker. But just in any other thing, how it takes years of practice. We have to we have to do certain things to to uh, allow ourselves to grow in the light of God's presence. Uh, G.K. Juster, Chesterton said, "Christianity has not so much been found tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried." First Peter four, or sorry, First Timothy four seven b through eight. Rather, train yourselves in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So if we want to become like Jesus, we need to practice what he practiced. In other words, what other people of faith have done. And today I want to look at two primary things when talking about Christian growth or how to remain, how to abide in Christ. And that is the things that we probably all heard growing up, which is scripture and prayer. And these are just not things that you're just told to do in church, but these are things that actually have real means of changing us. And the reason that they have real means of changing us is because these things are about looking to Christ. Remember that growth is not something that that entirely involves God and entirely involves us. These disciplines that we're talking about are not so much uh, working up toward Christ, but opening ourselves up to Christ. Spiritual disciplines are like windows into our soul. By actively looking to Jesus, we abide in him. It's by looking at Christ that we remain and therefore grow. It's through these disciplines that we open our souls to the light of God and he is able to make us grow just as sunlight does to a tree. Psalm 34 5 says that they looked to him and were radiant. In in Hebrews it says to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In the same way that growth for a tree doesn't come from looking inward to its own resources, but by looking up and opening to the sun, so is ours in Christ. And it's through these disciplines, not so much a working up toward Christ, but what they do is they open the windows of my soul to the light of Christ that's already available to me. Remember, he's always with us. We are united. He is in us. And it's through these disciplines, we're not working toward him because he's already with us, but rather we're opening. We're allowing the light of his presence to come into our hearts and to make make these things grow. So we're rooted in love. And as we do these disciplines, what we're doing is we're looking at Christ. So we're looking at Christ. The the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray, said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. As we have seen, Christ is always available and present, but we are not always available with Him, or not always aware of Him. It's through these simple disciplines that we actively look at Jesus. So looking at Jesus through the Scripture. So the first way that we gaze upon Christ, that we open our souls to His light that allows us to grow, is through Scripture. Jesus Himself is called the Word of God we look at the Gospels and we see how he thinks and how he works and what's important to him. But it's not just in the New Testament, but it's also in the Old. Oh, Jesus said that you search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, but it's these that testify of me. And in Luke, after Jesus resurrects, he appears to some disciples on the road to Emmaus and he's disguised himself. I don't know what he looked like, but Jesus has a sense of humor because he says that he was going to let him go to the next town and he's going to act like, and they're like, oh, no, stay. And he's like, okay. So... He tells them, and he he says, "How foolish you are!" That, and then he opens their eyes, to slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and to enter His glory? And beginning with Moses, so beginning with the Old Testament, the Law, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. So Jesus is the story of the Bible. He is not a part of it. He is the whole thing. From beginning to end, that he is in the story of Abraham and Isaac, that he is in Daniel in the lion's den, he's in the story of Joseph and the Passover lamb. He's this bronze serpent, that the whole thing is about him. And so in John 5, he says you search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, but they witness of me. They witness of me. So what Jesus is doing is he's correcting when we have just an informational view of the Bible and not a relational view. That is through the scriptures that the idea of Christ then becomes real. That we, the window through which we reach hold and grab hold of him, that he becomes real and something concrete that we can hold. If we want to find Jesus, it begins in his word. The Bible is Jesus in print, as I've heard it said. We gaze and grow as we look upon Christ in his word, not only on a practi- uh, not only that, but on a practical level. The word of God is sustenance. It's food for our soul, and that's how we grow. And you can see that in First Peter 2. Therefore, like newborn infants... Desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. F.F. F. Bosworth said, most Christians feed their bodies three hot meals a day and their spirit one cold snack a week. And they wonder why they're so weak in faith. Um, there was a, a, a person that's been uh, especially influential for me in my understanding or my desire to grow more in the word of God is a Chinese missionary. Not missionary. He's from China. And Brother Yun. You guys, anyone ever heard of Brother Yoon? Brother Yun. Yeah, he's my favorite. So I remember I read that book twice in high school. It's called The Heavenly Man, if you want to read it. So pretty much he's 15 years old. And this is in, the, in, the, uh, in communist China. He's still alive today. And there's no Bibles. He's 15 years old. and His family doesn't know anything about Christ or anything. Uh, his dad is sick and bedridden. And his mom can't read. And, uh, and his mom's actually suicidal. And she's getting ready to hang herself she's thinking, my husband's going to die. I have no one to provide for me. Everything's a waste. And now she's getting ready to hang herself. She hears this audible voice. It tells her that, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm going to heal your husband. And of course, she then hears this voice. She goes and tells her kids. And she says, we got to pray for your dad. So they go in and pray and he's healed. So Brother Yun now knows that there's a God. And again, he's 15 years old, but there's no Bibles. There's no Bibles in communist China. And so what he does is he begins to pray and fast. So he eats just one bowl of rice a day. For 60 days, praying and fasting, asking God for a Bible, asking God for a Bible. Desiring and hungering for the word of God, wanting to know more about Jesus. And then one night he has a dream. And in his dream he has a, a man come to him, smiling, carrying a loaf of bread. And one of these falls out and he picks it up and then gives it to him in his dream. And then he wakes up from his dream and he hears a knock at the door. And he goes to his door and there's a man there that hands him a Bible through the door. And then he then took that word and he read it, I can't remember how fast, read it so fast. And then he said, well, I don't want to just read it. So he started memorizing it. And he started with the Gospel of Matthew. He memorized one chapter a day and he, until he got to the end of Matthew. And then God spoke to me, "So I go to the west and to the south and preach my gospel. And he went out. And so it's not just so much a discipline. But what's so impressive to me is that I've seen this man. He is the most joyful, life-filled person. It says that even when he was in prison, when, when he got a Bible, he would memorize, the book of Hebrews and the book of Ephesians, and to have these things to strengthen him. And he's the most joyful person. You guys can look him up on YouTube, Brother Yoon. So the first way that we gaze upon Christ is through the scriptures. The second way that we gaze upon Christ is through prayer. And prayer is the purposeful setting aside of everything else that we can gaze at Christ and look to him. And Second Corinthians 3.18 says so all of you who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit Makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And so I don't think of any other, I can't think of any other story more uh, impactful when it comes to this is the story of Mary in the New Testament. It says that she was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word, that Martha was worried and bothered about all the preparations, all the things that she had to do. But Mary understood that when Jesus is in the room, Jesus is the priority. And so I think that's a lesson for us. And I know it's a lesson for me that I think about the many things I have to do. And I think let's get those things done first and then I'll spend time with Jesus. But what Mary showed us is that first Jesus, that when he is in the room, he is the priority and everything else will take care of itself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So these two practices, Bible and prayer, it's, I've heard it said, it's like inhaling and exhaling. It's like uh, two, two uh, wings on a plane. It's been said all word and no spirit will dry up all spirit and no word will blow up, but both word and spirit we grow up. it's through these simple practices that we open our souls to the ever-present Christ who is able to transform us by his spirit and by his word. And like Joey was saying, talking about time, I heard a story about a man that, uh, that was a Christian by, by name, but maybe just went to church, didn't think, wasn't ha- having his life transformed and he told his pastor, he said, yeah, well, if I was a pastor, you know, I would have all the time in the world and I could spend as much time as I, with God as I want. And the pastor responded to him and challenged him and said, well, I often, I found in my life that I make time for the things I value most. And the man was challenged by this. This is a true story. And so he decided, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a chair. I'm going to buy a recliner. And so he bought a recliner, a comfortable one, and he determined that every day he was going to spend 20 minutes with God in the Bible and prayer before, before work. And so he did that every day. It became a habit, a routine in his life. And first there was negligible growth, not really much at all. But as he was consistent, as he continued to do it, people began to see change in him. People began to see that he was kinder, and he even noticed these things in himself at work. People started calling out until he was eventually promoted in his company, and, and things started going well for him. And then eventually he passed away, and that family kept that chair as a as a sign of what a consistent life with God can do and the transformation that they saw in their dad. So great growth in Christ comes by grace. We don't become more godly by doing more godly things. We have been forgiven in Christ, brand new creatures, the old gone and the new is here. We are forgiven. But the gospel is not just good news for the future life, but for the present life. It's good news that we can change, that we don't have to be who we used to be, that we can grow. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that transforms us people who we can become people, new people, people who are pleasant to be around, people who are happy, people who are joyful, who are at peace, that we can become those kind of people, people who don't look like the world, people who don't complain. Because we are not confident in ourselves and our own ability, but we see Jesus, our forerunner and the one who has gone before us, our champion who has tasted death for us, and it came out victorious. And it's as we stubbornly plant our roots in love and look to bask in the light of Christ that we become more like him. So what we need to be is people who continuously and courageously return to Christ every day. Putting ourselves before him through scripture and prayer. Looking unto Christ. Because it's when we do that that we're transformed. And that even when we sin, even when we're happy, when we're joyful, when we're sad, doesn't, remat- doesn't matter. We consistently and continuously return to Christ to look at him and to be transformed by him. Bringing our sin, bringing our failures, bringing everything we are. And Paul says this to finish, not that I've already obtained this. So not that we have already become what we want to become. Or have already arrived at my goal. But I pressed on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind. So we need to forget What is behind? straining toward what is ahead, pressing on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So let's forget about our mistakes. Let's forget about the things that we've done. Let's forget about all the things that we are and let's look to Christ. Let's be rooted in his love and not let anything in the world pull us from it. And it's as we do that and open our souls to him through the word of God and prayer to bask in his light that we will grow and become everything that he wanted us to be, wants us to be. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the transforming power that your grace has in our lives. Please help us, Lord, in our failures and our mistakes in those areas that we don't feel lovely to be rooted in your love and to remain in your love. And then to look at you and to open the souls, open the windows of our soul to your light Help us to trust you as our intercessor, as the one that we can continuously come to when we're feeling sinful or shameful. Thank you that you are a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, that we can therefore approach with confidence your throne of grace. Please help us to do that today, continuously. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.